You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. you to listen to the Sharon Kleiner Hour. I am Sharon Kleiner. I am excited to teach you in a classroom each week from 10 to 11 West Coast time every Monday about the power of water and our health. And now we're learning more about what global warming, climate change is affecting our lives and our body and our earth. This show every week has attracted the most exciting people to teach us something from coast to coast and soon worldwide. What we need to learn to know more about not only ourselves, but the earth itself. How do we live on this earth? It's not going to live with us. We need to learn to live with earth. But it would live with us if we learned that. There's so much going on with education that it does become very confusing. Did you know your body is made up of about 80% water. You're made up of 50 trillion cells of water. If you're not drinking enough water, what are you doing to deplete your body called dehydration? The moment you were born, you entered in the air you breathe from your mother's water, and then all of a sudden you begin this dehydration process. What is the most important ingredient and nutrition of your everyday life is the water and the amount of water you drink. What is the symptom? It's a dehydration. What happens to our earth to have a dehydration is water. So remember that on earth there is, the earth is made up of 70% of water. But 97.5% of that earth, of this earth, is saline. We're not saline. 2.5% is fresh water. But two-thirds are in the glaciers and polar ice caps. So and, and over 2.2 million people die because of diseases and related water problems around the world. A sanitation takes water. You must have uh, abundant amount of water for your growing of your crops. Earth has to have water to grow the trees. Did you know that it's possible that if you grew trees around the earth and kept a healthy tree growing alongside of a, of a mature growth tree, you could have, you could contribute to global warming abatement. That is what Jerry Barnes is going to teach us today. One of our guests is owner of a Tree Improvement Enterprises Incorporated in Cottage Grove, Oregon. He just has been going to New Zealand for quite a few years and learning how to reseed orchards for New Zealand to learn how to grow trees and keep up with the global warming cycle and what they need as a country. This can become an exciting new invention, let's say, a new enterprise around the world to be able to grow trees and keep up with what the global warming and what is necessary. Our second uh, guest today is Carol Sperling um, in Colorado, and we're gonna, she's the chief of interpretation with the Great Sand Dunes, the national park there. And we're going to learn more about the sand dunes there and what makes them 750 feet high. But we're going to listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Jerry Barnes and learn more about what he's doing to help New Zealand with their global warming abatement. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, and we'll be right back. (laughs) 
Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. You're listening to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, the power of water and your earth and what you need to learn to live with this earth, but you also need to learn to live with earth. We have a very exciting guest on today, Jerry Barnes from Cottage Grove, Oregon. Jerry, are you with us? Yes, I am, Sharon. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us again. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, I call this a classroom, and with the listeners all over the world, they're finding that <clears throat> we are offering them a new approach to proactive understanding, <clears throat> excuse my voice, Jerry, of learning more about the earth and your health to go with the earth, because well, living with the earth is the health of yourself ecosystem with earth. And you just got back again from being in New Zealand. But I want, before we begin, let's educate our listeners about what you're doing with what's called tree improvement and pine cone, uh, the, the seeds, I mean the pine seeds or the seed reforestation. I shouldn't say pine. I didn't mean to say that, but seed reforestation. Well, pine is one, uh, one group of species, and there's, a, there are, uh, there's genetic programming going on with uh, a lot of different pine species, particularly in the, uh, in the south of our country. But our interest, and my interest, is mostly in the Douglas fir species. Uh, Douglas uh, fir, okay. In the Pacific Northwest area. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, there's about a 50-plus year history in genetic programming in Douglas fir. You know, when you start to harvest timber or you lose timber to a natural cause or your your forest, uh, we're faced with the obligation of replacing those stands. And when we do that, uh, 50 years ago, everybody realized that we would want to put the very best seed back into the ground uh, so that the stand that we produced was as good as nature would produce or possibly better in terms of our needs and uses. And so 50 years ago, they, uh, a program began here in the Pacific Northwest where uh, the very best trees were salt out uh, in all of the different stands and brought together and tested in plots, and uh, seed orchards were uh, established, um, like, just like a fruit orchard uh, made of Douglas fir and conifer trees where, we, uh, where seed was produced that... Uh, came from uh, the best performers that were placed out in the woods for Mother Nature to test. Now let's back up for a moment. Um, so you were in the forest, you were finding with research that uh, there were healthy trees that could reproduce more trees. That's true. It's just like any other crop. I mean, the forest is just another crop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have... Um, uh, Big squash and little squash, and mm-hmm. if you're after big squash, that's the one you pick for the seed. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we are doing are picking the trees that would be best for production for timber harvesters and mm-hmm. and also best uh, healthiest and best form trees. So, 
it's, it's not just a timber harvest thing, it's the replacement of a healthy forest that we're after. Mm-hmm. For the, but we're now learning more about our ecosystem. Yes, of course, the forest is a, is a uh, major component of that. <laughs> exactly. Um, how long ago did you say they started doing this, 50 years? Well, it's been uh, over 50 years. Okay. I, I, I say 50 years because that's when the actual uh, installation of many of the orchards in this country began. So then what they would do is literally go out and collect the pine, uh, the pine excuse me, the, uh, uh, the seed, and then they would uh, uh, produce that in greenhouses and start a little sibling tree and then take it out and plant it into the forest. Yes, that's right, along with uh, all the other uh, progeny or siblings from the best trees they found out there, and they'd watch those for a number of years and see which ones did the best. And you know, we're learning a little bit. We had Dr. Tom Atsit on here recently talking about bacteria and uh, microorganisms. And I, we had a lot of very great questions, and he answered. When, you, when a person goes out and gets a seed, Jerry, uh, out of a forest, and you grow those little sibling trees, do you take them back to the same forest in the same area where, that, uh, where the seed was collected? Yeah, well, nature has adapted uh, each uh, forest and to its particular environment. Uh-huh. And um, But if you can uh, measure environments, you can move your seed to a similar environment. Okay. Uh, but you can't move it to one that is uh, very different because uh, the trees will not grow well. Because of that, uh, what we were learning on our last class here with uh, bacteria and microorganisms of the soil and what is going on in the ecosystem of where we're of that location? We learned a lot about even ourselves because, as a uh, ecosystem of human species, that living on the soil uh, and where you're near all of those the bacteria and microorganism is a relationship you have for your immunity protection. Even um, so, when you've collected the seeds and grown the sibling plant, let's say now you're going to all the way to New Zealand to show them how to do this. And how long have you been doing that? Well, I've been involved in my uh, New Zealand uh, projecting for about 10 years now. Uh, New Zealand is a mirror image of our area here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, in the sub- southern hemisphere. So the, the, the day length and the rainfall and a, a lot of the environmental factors down there uh, are the same as ours. Mm-hmm. So the trees that grow here will grow there. Interesting. Yeah, and they know that, and they got into the programming a little later, so it it um, it was a uh, they could come and, and talk to people like myself and other people in the northwest here that have been in this programming, mm-hmm. and uh, and we have moved the better seed lots from this country to their country mm-hmm. uh, to make Douglas fir of, of a superior form and growth to be used in New Zealand. Now, these are seeds, and you're taking, are you delivering the seeds to them? Well, and they grow yeah. them in their own greenhouses. Yeah, well, we uh, took the seeds down, and we um, are growing them in uh, measured plots and mm-hmm. seed orchards out in the forest there in okay, New Zealand. Okay, in the forest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh-huh. And, um, it's interesting, just as a note, that there are no conifers in New Zealand that are uh, native. Uh, conifers are a northern hemisphere group. Now, let's explain to our listeners in our classroom what conifers means. 
Well, a conifer is a, is a type of tree. It's, uh, it's a more primitive uh, group of species than the uh, deciduous trees, uh, like uh, hardwoods. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it uh, makes up our major uh, forest of softwood that we use in industry. Okay. Now, in New Zealand, did they choose the particular tree that they wanted the seeds, uh, have the seeds, or did you choose what was best for them? They did. They did it. I, would, I, they, I assist them and uh, assist in finding the genetic lots that they are importing. And we, we establish orchards and joint ventures down there to make seed for New Zealand. Now, how many, tree, how many acres do you think are planted so far with their trees? Well, uh, we aren't the only people in the business, of course. We have um, uh, four major seed orchards that are going that represent certain seed zones here in the uh, northwest that will adapt to the New Zealand environment. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to know that um, uh, New Zealand uh, was nearly void of, uh, of uh, trees, and, and, of course, there were no conifers. Mm-hmm. But if you go down there now, you feel like you're in Oregon or Washington State because there's many Douglas fir stands, a lot of uh, Monterey pine they call by species name radiata down there, mm-hmm. and they all do very well. Now, how long has that been going on and for them to be that tall? Well, uh, it's interesting that the first Douglas fir uh, was introduced to New Zealand over 100 years ago. Okay. And by some of the old, um, the old sailors that were first going down that way would take seeds with them and plant them. And, and of course, there were those specimen stands and trees to look at down there that uh-huh. excited them in terms of what species they might want to use. Now, they have a lot of water there, don't they? Yes, there's no place in New Zealand that's more than 80 miles from the ocean. <laughs> yeah, from the ocean, but what about freshwater? Well, and they have a very, they have tall mountains, and they have, yes, they have a lot of water. So did they it's get... a very maritime uh, okay. uh, environment down there. Now, is that, is that an island? There, uh, New Zealand is composed of two major islands, north mm-hmm. and south. Mm-hmm. Most of my efforts are uh, in Douglas Fir are in the South Island, okay. which is equal in latitude to... Uh, Willamette Valley here. Do they have snow-covered mountains? Oh, yes, they do. Uh, they have the Southern Alps, they call them, and, and uh, Mount Cook down there is over 12,000 feet tall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the, they have... the Lord of the Rings have seen some of those, uh, uh, those mountains down okay. there. Okay. Did they have glaciers and ice caps? And... Oh, yes. Yes, many of them. Uh-huh. Now, the, the, the people, it's probably not a very heavily populated uh, country, well, their population is about the same as Oregon State, a little over 4 million. Okay. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's, <clears throat> there's about 10 million sheep. <laughs> How many sheep? About 10 million. Or so. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's their main industry is raising sheep. Well, it used to be. However, the, uh, they have an interesting industry in, in deer. Uh, oh. And they uh, raise deer like we raise cattle. And then they also have cattle and dairy there. So they're raising the uh, deer uh, to be sold as what we call in America venison. Yes, uh-huh. It's really mostly what we would call elk here, but they, okay. they're all deer. And uh, it's kind of strange to go down there to see big fields of, of deer running around like you see cattle oh, here. Fascinating. And do they have a lot of valleys and between the mountains? Oh, yes. Yes, a very, uh, it's a beautiful farm country. And uh, I sure would recommend to anybody that wants to do a little adventuring to, to go to New Zealand. Because, and lots of water and fish, trout, water. trout fishing, yeah. and, uh-huh. and the water is uh-huh. probably very cold. Oh, yes. 
and it's interesting that um, a good part of their land down there was covered with large uh, grass called tussock grass. That's what kind of grass? Tussock. Tussock? Uh-huh. And it's a perennial, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, that grass has formed a sod that is ideal for growing forest trees. I'll be, huh? They can convert that grassland partially into large timber stands, and that's, that's where our seed will go. I'll be, huh? That's got to be something that we learned about the bacteria and the microorganisms because uh, Dr. Atzett taught us about this bacteria and microorganisms of, um, of what happens with our earth and what, how we live with it and how it re- protects itself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, now, when, you're, when you've gone to plant the seeds, are they doing this in certain areas only in New Zealand or are they doing this um, all of the north and south of New Zealand? Uh, even though you said you're mostly in the south, are they doing it in the north also? Yes, they are. Um, the history of uh, forestation there uh, started out with the uh, widespread use of uh, Monterey pine or radiata pine. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, uh, New Zealand is considering replacing most of those stands that they, as they are harvesting them, which is about now, with Douglas fir, even in the North Island to a large degree. Hmm. The North Island is more like California, and the South Island is more like Oregon. I see. It's upside down down there. Now, do they harvest their trees? Oh, yes, and uh, some of them are well into the harvest uh, period now. Okay. A large harvest of the radiata pine in the next few years now. Mm -hmm. Many of them were started uh, about the same time, and and, uh, many of those, uh, most of those, in fact, all of them in the South Island, by the latest information, will probably be replaced with Douglas fir and some other species. Okay, and are they producing enough to be able to have um, lumber mills, or they decided not to do that? Oh, yes, they they have lumber mills. They do a lot of export uh, of logs uh, there, Mm -hmm. mostly to Asia. But, of course, they have their own infrastructure to uh, worry about, and they use their timber to to build their towns and homes and mm-hmm. like the rest of us. So. Mm-hmm. so the trees, then, for that many years that they've been growing, they are able to produce the trees and use them for an industry. One of the advantages of New Zealand is that the, what we call the rotation period for harvest is quite short there as compared to even some of our better sites here and so that in 40 years, they can have timber out of Douglas fir and then radiata pine in 30 years. Now, is that because of the, the new uh, understanding of genetically uh, uh, planting the tree and what to do with the trees when they're well, planted? Our genetic efforts, which you know, uh, can add uh, up to, after a couple of generations of effort, 40% to the uh, volume and growth rate, mm-hmm. but... Um, uh, it's it's also climate. Okay. Yeah, it's Mother Nature. <laughs> now their climate. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's it's interesting if you uh, look at all the things that you measure climate by in the South Island, you come up with the same perimeters that we have here in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Mm-hmm. But there are some differences. We are a continental uh, country here, a mm-hmm. large mass of country, and we have a lot of inland uh, area down there. It's coastal wherever you go. Because it's an island. Because it's an island. Mm-hmm. So uh, their, their uh, forests resemble our forests uh, between the Cascade and the Oregon uh, mm-hmm. of the Pacific Ocean. So, mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a break with our sponsor, and we'll come back. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about what the influence of that island is doing um, and what you were talking about, maybe their 
uh, trying to um, have a global warming abatement, uh, they're, but they're adding to their their part. And I want to hear what their country is thinking about uh, global warming too, Jerry. Uh, I know all over the world they probably have a different view of it. Do they have the same view as we are here in America? Well, they have the same uh, diverse views down there as we have here. Okay, well, listen America. to our sponsor, and we'll come back, and, and we'll really, well, let's talk about that, because I Alrighty. think our listeners around the world would like to hear what they're thinking. Okay. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, a natural method of moisturizing the eye for the symptom of dry, uncomfortable eyes with tissue culture grade of water. We'll listen to our sponsor, and we will be right back. Listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Welcome you back to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, the power of water, our global warming and our health, and also the health of our earth. Jerry Barnes is a genetic specialist in uh, uh, seeds to plant new trees around the world, I would say. He's been working with different countries, but he just returned from New Zealand. He is the owner of Tree Improvement Enterprises and founder, I should say, in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Uh, Jerry, before we left, we were talking about the uh, um, what, what is happening in New Zealand? When you talk to somebody about global warming in New Zealand, what are they tell, what are they talking about? Well, down there, of course, they are very interested in maintaining their beautiful country and protecting it. Mm-hmm. And one of their efforts has been to establish uh, forest stands uh, for you know uh, a long-term species and protect their native species. They do have native trees there that are mm-hmm. very wonderful. I and mean, many native species um, that are beautiful flowering plants and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. By the way, we, um, we export those. Uh, they export those species throughout the world, and that's mm-hmm. a part of our programming there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to mention a few fi- facts and figures about uh, seed production in conifer orchards, if it's all right. Oh, no, no, we want to. It's kind of interesting. Yes, it is interesting. Um, and, and Douglas fir, and I'll stick to that species, uh, when you uh, produce a pound of seed, there's about 40,000 seeds in that pound. Mm. And um, it's variable and controlled by how much goes into it and what industrial uh, standards are. But the price of uh, improved uh, Douglas fir seed runs uh, like five hundred to a thousand dollars a pound. Okay. And that may sound like a lot of money, but I wanted to talk about that a bit. I guess do. A pound of uh, seed will make about thirty-five thousand seedlings after the oh, okay. nursery program, and uh, you plant about five hundred seedlings uh, to uh, forest an acre. 
And so you end up, uh, one pound makes 70 acres of a forest stand. Okay. And when you, if you work that out, it's costing about $11 uh, per acre or two cents per tree to do all that genetic programming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a real good investment. If you look oh, yeah. at, if you put it in perspective by comparing it to the other costs that go, in, that go into establishing a tree in the woods, you have a nursery cost, which is like 10 times that amount, mm-hmm. 20 cents. Mm-hmm. You have planting costs. You have crop tending. So, actually, the genetic side of things is a really good deal. I'm glad you told us about that. Now, repeat that again. So, well, one pound of seeds is about um, how many seeds? 40,000 seeds. 40,000 40,000, 40, uh-huh. Can you imagine? 40,000 tiny seeds. Uh-huh. Okay. okay, and then you said, uh, and, and, and it's about $1,000, but uh, you end up planting over 70 acres? Yes. And so, so when we put a seed orchard in, the normal size of our orchard is about 15 acres for mm-hmm. a zone. Mm-hmm with 300 orchard trees in an acre. So we have about four to 4,500 trees in an orchard. Mm-hmm. And in a good uh, year, and that's all up to Mother Nature in spite of our best efforts, mm-hmm. in the best cone year, we call it, we might get half of a bushel okay. of um, cones off of uh, the average tree. And so that ends up being about uh, a quarter of a pound of uh, seed per orchard tree. Uh-huh which equals, in nice round figures, about 1,000 pounds per year in a productive orchard. Mm-hmm. That will reforest 70,000 acres. Wow, that's wonderful. So when you were over there recently, what was your project to be? Were you taking, did they already receive the seeds and you're going out and helping them? Well, we're just, what was getting, the project? Yes, I am. Uh, uh, their oldest seed orchard is now producing seed. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, we were down working together on... Um, on cross-pollination, pollinating uh, uh, progeny lots from those orchard trees uh, for a second generation. Now explain to our listeners what pollinating would mean. Well, that is controlling the parentage of the seed you're making for both male and female parents. Okay. Is that like grafting? Well, it's like crossing. Crossing. Yeah. And, uh, we, of course, we do a lot of grafting, and I was down uh, measuring trees uh, so that we can determine which are the best in that country as compared to which are the best here. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're out there, uh, something that went through my mind, um, uh, because we were listening to the, the geography of New Zealand, are they planting these usually on hills, or where are they planting them? Mostly in foothills and foothills. In, uh, in the valleys. Um, huh? The island environment is uh, a lot as compressed as compared to ours. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go very high before you start getting into a pretty severe situation of winds and wintry weather that uh, where the trees won't grow. Uh-huh. And so you're about limited to an elevation of uh, six or eight hundred um, meters mm-hmm. and down down there. Mm-hmm. So the most it's in the foothills and in the in the valleys that they, and they plant them at what time of year usually. Well, it's just the reverse of what we would be doing here. And so they would be planting uh, in our fall, early fall, or their early spring down there, which is August, September. Okay. Okay. So then when they plant them, do they have a lot of spring rain? And uh, Yes, they do tend to have a lot of rain. Their rainfall is ours. But how many inches of rain do you know how much they get a year? Well, about uh, 40 to 60 uh, in, in the areas that we're dealing with. 
course, on the west coast of the South Island, they have the most rainfall in the world, and it's a big uh, national park and reserve there. It's on, and it's on the west coast of which yes, uh-huh. is the north well, of the south. That's not a part of the area that we would be dealing with. Okay, that's the west coast of, of the uh, of the north of the south side. South, south Island. West coast south. Okay, and that has the most amount abundant of rain anywhere in the world. Yep, just about. That's uh-huh. what they claim, anyhow. <laughs> yeah. And you would believe it if you were down there. <laughs> yeah. So, have you ever been there that time of year? Uh, well, uh, no, I really haven't I spent much time there. I get down there, and I usually am involved in my work in my areas. So. Mm-hmm. And you're usually there about a month? Uh, about a month at a time, maybe two times a year uh, okay. uh, to help manage the, our, our joint efforts mm-hmm. there. Now, is the way, the we have a, they have a, um, a website up down there on their for forest seed now. Yeah, what is that? It's called the Dusky Forest Seed. You can just put that... That title in the um, on the so, web and it'll come up. I'll, I'll spell it. It's D U S K Y F O R E S T S E E D dot and what is that C O? Yes, C O dot N like a Nancy. Uh-huh. Is, is that a, a zebra or a two? Yeah, N Z New Zealand. N Z O of course New Zealand. So dusty for a C dot C O dot NZ for New Zealand. Uh huh. And a slash. Uh, and a slash. Forward slash. And of course, you got to put your www in front. Of course, you do www.dusky. Yeah, all right. And that, um, you can see a picture of me there if you want. Okay, Gary <laughs> Barnes. <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, anybody that's interested in seed purchase and finding out more about that programming down there can go to that website, and there are contact numbers in there. Now, have you ever uh, been had anyone from Australia call you yet? Well, um, uh, not me. I don't know about they receive their calls down there, and then anything that involves me, we get involved in it. So Okay. Um, now, but, where else in the world, before we uh, conclude our first, uh, this class today, uh, is there something you want to tell us? And then where else in the world do you believe that they're going to be starting to do more of this? Because this is a very exciting ecosystem, global climate uh, change, uh, uh, prevent, and uh, you called it abatement, but... Um, where else in the world do you think they should take this serious? Well, uh, of course, our first interest is in providing seed for New Zealand through our New Zealand orchards. And but uh, our long-term goal is to uh, uh, serve global forestry. And once we make enough seed in our orchards mm-hmm. and they're big enough to do it, we will be offering that seed to uh, interested countries throughout the world. And that's that's a uh, that's an industry all of itself for jobs. Yes. And uh, the seed can be used uh, pretty much around the 45th latitude throughout the world in temperate areas. Mm-hmm. So there's places like Europe uses a lot of Douglas fir. There's Africa, uh, South America, Australia, mm-hmm. New Zealand, and and so on. So mm-hmm. and of how course back take, to this country. <laughs> how long did before we also? How long does it take a t- seed to produce? Uh, well, to produce, uh, uh, anything to see at all. Uh, about five years in Douglas fir, particularly in New Zealand, we're seeing the first seed come on in our our five-year-old uh, plantings down. So when you plant a seed, it takes five years to really see a tree begin to grow. No, it takes five years for it, it grows up down there. They're maybe already twenty feet tall. Okay, there we go. That's what I meant. If yeah, you plant a yeah, seed yeah. from that moment, how long does it take for you to see a a growth begin? Oh well, it begins. Uh, after about um, 30, 40 days in the okay. nursery, they sprout. 
and grow. And by the time they go out in the woods, they're a couple feet tall, and they grow very rapidly. And, and then they get up to about people realize, and they know. get up to about twenty feet tall in about five years. Yeah, in the good site and in, in the right place. Yeah, in the right place, and even start to produce seeds, and which is a lot earlier than uh, you would uh, expect in, in most cases, but. Uh, you know, we talked about grafting before. If we take a limb from an older tree that's already making cones and graft it to a small tree, it makes cones right away. Uh-huh. And we do that, too. We have oh, you do do that, too? Uh-huh. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk about global warming and and the environment, and, and you know, it's just fascinating how uh, people uh, on the earth and here in America, Jerry, they think they know what they're talking about, and they don't know. They don't understand uh, that when they say global warming, climate change, what that means. They're really thinking, well, I guess there's something serious <laughs> happening. I can't do anything about it, but I guess I could probably turn off the electricity in each room, and I could recycle my uh, garbage. Uh, I can learn to do all these different things about how to make the environment better on my part, but they don't really realize how exciting it is to be part of learning more about it. Uh, and that's an eco-behavior of itself. If the human species would learn, want to learn and be part of what you're offering, go to those websites and learn that trees are also an abatement, that there's other things to do other than that what's probably what the news media has been telling us about, uh, that there's other things to learn to do for adding to what you can contribute to uh, helping the earth to be here for eternity. Don't you think also, Sharon, that not only do we have to uh, do all we can to maintain our environment as we know it, but we also have to learn to live with the change. We can't really, um, you know, uh, fight Mother Nature all exactly. the time. Exactly. That's what it. this show is all about, Jerry, learning to live with the earth. That's right. It's a very special, and in fact, at the end of the show, every week I say earth secret. Um, embrace your life every precious moment. Well, what I mean is earth secret is embrace your life with earth. That's right. And the moment is important. Think about the moment. And then all of a sudden I say, but earth is whispering. Never say goodbye. And what I mean is leave your footprint. Enjoy the fact you were here and, and you've left something. And, and we have so much to offer what you and your family are doing. Before we go, tell us a little bit about your family before I forget that joined in with you with this um, idea that you had. Uh, you started this uh, business how long ago, Jerry? Uh, well, it's been about um, almost 30 years ago now. And when you started it, a lot of people probably thought, what in heck are you thinking, right? Well, what actually happened is that I was doing this kind of work for the U.S. Forest Service, uh-huh. and I could see that there was a need uh, beyond just the federal land. So mm-hmm. we started the, I started the business, and, and my family and I have worked together at it mm-hmm. through these years. Uh-huh. So it became a family mission, too. Yes, it is, very much. I couldn't have done it without them. Well, and that's called that mission. Uh, everybody's getting together and uh, doing it together, and you go out and harvest the seeds and bring them back to your uh, greenhouses, your nurseries. And one time you told us you put your all those seeds into something and shake them. What did you call that? Well, we call it a tumbler. 
the tumbler. Yeah, we have a series of machines. Some of them we've designed, some of them we buy. And one of our major efforts as a corporation is to to extract, uh, test, store, and distribute mm-hmm. conifer tree seed. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something about the pH of the seeds one time. Uh, you're always looking for a particular seed out of out of the tumbler. Well, yes, we of course we have to get. Uh, you know, remove everything from the seed lot that is not seed or is not healthy seed, and mm-hmm. our machines are set up to do that. Mm-hmm. We end up with nothing but, uh, you know, uh, industrial levels of, of of good seed that's ready to go into a planting. Then when you when you uh, staff your family, uh, tumble it, and you pull out those seeds, and you touch that seed, and you put it where? What do you do with it on the next step? Well, after we've adjusted the moisture and determined the values and okay. uh, met all the standards we have to meet, uh, Douglas fir seed can be uh, the if the uh, moisture level is lowered to the proper place, we can store that in a freezer. Okay, and it can be stored for twenty to fifty years. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I like when you said moisture. I you know that's what everything is about too. Yeah, is that word moisture? Right. Right. Yeah, and that's what we were learning about uh, from Dr. Atsa, too, is the bacteria and the microorganisms and all that come together to build what's life on this earth. And that's what you're doing with the seeds. That's right. Is and there anything you'd like to close uh, one, uh, with One thing that's just come up that may be of interest is that there are uh, truffles, are um, uh, a organism that grow on the uh, roots of Douglas fir. And... Um, they are starting that industry in uh, New Zealand as well now. Truffles? Truffles, yep. What, what, how do you spell that? Oh, well, you know, like a, a, the candy you eat or That's what I you were saying. mushroom. Uh-huh. <laughs> Truffles. Yeah, so they're finding much. that on the base of the, of the trunk of the tree? Well, no, it's down in the ground. Oh, down in the ground. In the roots. In the roots, uh, yeah. We're back to the bacteria and the microorganisms. Uh, and it's, it's a relationship, a symbiotic relationship. The tree does not grow well without its mycorrhizae, and that's what that there is. There we go. Huh. And so it's, you know, it's an ecology. It's not just a species. Oh, no, it's an ecology. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you for joining us again today. You bet. It was is there my anything pleasure. you'd like to say to everyone to close? Yes, there is. Uh, plant trees. Plant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's plant trees and enjoy our ecosystem for for generations, and and let's bring the word eternity back to our vocabulary again, right, Jerry? Right, that's a good goal. Well, you tell everyone I said hello. I will do so. Thank you, and thank you for giving us your time. You bet. Bye bye. Wow, it brings tears to my eyes when I stop to think about people like the Barnes family. Um, they're uh, son, uh, Sean, is uh, running the company I know, and uh, his wife, Deanie. Joining in with Jerry Barnes' mission and vision way back, long ago, on what the future of the earth needs. And that's what we do here every day, every week, is in our company, Biologic Aqua. We try to think about what's best with water and the water therapy. That's our world. And by the way, we're the only water therapy research center in the world to understand how you can carry with you what the air is too dry and not giving you and and something to think about every day. So plant a tree and enjoy that tree. And remember, even indoors in your homes, have a water fountain and plant some, have your plants. And in your plants, make sure there's plenty of moisture and maybe a little bowl of water right in the soil of the plant to give it the humidity it needs. That is your earth. That, blonde, that is something, your footprint. That is that whisper I talk about.
We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, for replacing a supplement to dry eye, whether you have a headache or an allergy or drowsy or a sniffle or burning, scratchy, uh, blurry eyes are a dry eye. And by the way, every five seconds, someone is going blind on our earth because of the dehydration of the depletion of your eyes. So remember, the original symptom is the loss of natural moisture. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, and we'll be right back with Carol Sperling from uh, the uh, National Park of Colorado. We'll listen to our sponsor and be right back. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Welcome you back to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, the power of water, global warming, and our life on this earth and learning more about it. Today we have Carol Sperling with us from Masco, Colorado, who is the Chief of Interpretation with the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Reserve. We're going to be discussing more about sand dunes. Can you imagine sand dunes in Colorado? Carol, are you with us? I am. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, thank you for giving us your time and all that experience that you all are having over there. Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, how did you get into Masco, Colorado, and be the chief of interpretation? Well, I've worked for the National Park Service since 1978 at several other national parks and uh, national monuments, but there was a job opportunity here about eight years ago, which I applied to, and I've been happily working here ever since. And it's quite a fascination. Um, you know, when you think about sand dunes in, this, in the state of Colorado, uh, I, you think of them being next to the ocean somewhere or over in the desert of Saudi Arabia or the Asia areas that we, we think about nothing but solid sand deserts. But tell us about the dunes in uh, Colorado. Well, you're exactly right. One of the comments we hear very frequently from people who are visiting for the first time is something like, this is really weird. Yeah, it's like a mirage. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and these are not only sand dunes, but they're the tallest dunes in North America. Uh And so the dune field itself is very visible and, uh, you know, very remarkable to people for miles and miles around. Mm -hmm. So... um, the, the monument was established partly to protect the dunes themselves back in the 1930s already. Mm-hmm. But one of the exciting things and th- something that ties into just a little bit of what you were talking about earlier is that the, par- the monument ex- expanded into a national park and preserve about four years ago, partly because of the hydrologic pattern or the hydrologic system here uh, and the recognition of how important water is both on the surface and below the surface 
not only to all of the plants and animals that live here, but to the dunes themselves. Well, you have a Colorado, we need to tell the listeners, Colorado, you people there, are doing an absolute unbelievable, and I'm almost going to call it philanthropic, you're preserving a state with all of that natural wonder and water for other states to use, too. Well, that's right, with a little bit of conflict, of course, like there always is. Yeah, water. You're, you're providing water from the magnificent state of Colorado and all your hard work of preservation to the state of now, uh, correct me, is it California, mm-hmm. Utah? I believe so. Corner of Utah and Arizona. As well as parts of New Mexico, I New think. New Mexico, mm-hmm. your state. Now, when you said hydraulic um, and sand dunes, tell us the connection of the water, which means hydraulics. Uh, what is happening around those sand dunes with water? Well, there are two creeks that flow on either side of the dune field, and the dune field itself is quite large. It's about 30 square miles of, of dunes, and on the east side and then on the northwest side, there are two streams that flow out of the mountains. And just to back up for a minute, one of the reasons that Colorado provides all of that water to the downstream states is because of the the rise of the Rocky Mountains and the way that they capture moisture that comes oftentimes in the form of snow Mm -hmm. uh, in the watersheds for all of those big rivers that that irrigate, you could say, the the southwest. Mm -hmm. At Great Sand Dunes, those two streams originate in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains above the dune field. And in some ways, you could think of the Sangre de Cristos as a big snow fence that captures snow, winter storms, and moisture uh, all winter long. And then in spring, when the temperatures start to warm, that snow, of course, starts to melt and and uh, becomes Medano Creek, which flows on the east side of the dune field, and Sand Creek, which flows on the west side. Mm-hmm. One of the things that those streams both do, in addition to helping to recharge the aquifer, the, the wet water areas below the surface, exactly. That's aquifers. In addition to that, they also move huge quantities of sand from the edges of the dune field downstream, and they deposit that sand to the south and west of the dune field. Now, that's, that's, you're talking fields. Now, a lot of, pe- a lot of us think about a field uh, that is kind of a flat and grassy, and, and all, but you're saying dune fields. Of course, does this mean nothing but sand fields? Well, pretty much. It means about 30 square miles of open, shifting sand dunes. So if you think of coastal dunes that often form in long, narrow strips along the coasts and then turn that into a big kidney-shaped deposit that's maybe, oh, seven or eight miles east to west and nine to 11 miles north to south, Mm -hmm. you have this huge area of mostly unvegetated, um, very tall dunes. Now, let's find out, uh, and if if I stop me if I'm asking a question you can handle and we can get it again later but how did the sand do how did the sand fields how did that sand begin where it's at what was the what was the uh, what was the nature of the ecosystem what was the nature of it all for that to happen for dunes to form here yes current thinking is that most of this sand originated in the San Juan mountains which are west of us yeah we're on the east side of a big flat valley the Sangre de Cristos are on the east side of that valley, but on the west side are the San Juan Mountains. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Those are both subchains of the Rocky Mountain chain. Now, before you go, how, how, give us the height, the, the height of those mountains. Well, both of them contain peaks that are above 14,000 feet in elevation. So they're some of the tallest in the Rocky Mountain chain. Mostly rock, very uh-huh. rock, rocky. Right, part of the Rocky Mountain. Okay, I'm trying to, yeah, <laughs> picture. I'm coming to get to that sand that you've yeah. got there. So the San Juan Mountains, like every mountain range on Earth, are gradually eroding, and one of the, the byproducts of erosion of mountains is everything from big, gigantic boulders down to little, tiny pieces of rock, which we call sand. Mm-hmm. So geologists think that most of the sand that is now on the east side of our valley originated on the west side as parts of the San Juan Mountains. Mm-hmm. And those tiny particles, as well as larger ones, were carried out of the mountains by, by uh, streams and creeks and rivers that flowed in ancient times. Obviously, of, a huge river. Well, maybe, or maybe many, many smaller ones. Smaller ones with a lot of rocks moving to, to grind, of, that, grind that up. Uh-huh, right. to grind that up. And what I was thinking is, now, it's um, okay, that would make sense. It wouldn't be such huge rivers. It would be smaller, uh, narrower rivers, maybe, uh, shallower, maybe, but they're grinding that, uh, the, that rock up into that fine sand. That's right. They probably were pretty Way steep Way back rivers. in time. Yeah. Thousands and, of years ago. Or, mm-hmm. And in the va- what we think of as this very dry valley today, desert-like valley, in ancient times geologists think there were a series of shallow lakes. And so all of that debris that washed out of the San Juan Mountains would have been deposited on the beds or the floors of these shallow lakes. Mm-hmm. Now, they also think that this was occurring during times that were wetter than our current times today, a wetter sense. climate. It does make sense. And so during dry periods then, those uh-huh. lakes disappeared, and all of that debris from tiny particles of sand up to pebbles and larger rocks was dry and sitting on the surface. Now, what type of, do, you have, do you have any idea what type of rock that is? Because I always think about the rock. What type of, uh, of rock is that? A lot of the rocks in the San Juans are igneous in, in origin. That's a very uh, a mountain range that's been strongly shaped by volcanic activity. Okay, there we go. So some of quite a few of the grains of sand today are quartz. Okay. And many of the the others that are not quartz are the same components as the parts of the San Juan Mountains that we observe in our time. I always think of the San Juan Mountains as really far west. Well, they're on the western side of Colorado. But they, it's a very broad mountain chain, and so if one drives over toward South Fork uh, or over Wolf Creek Pass... Now, what other states would the San Juan Mylands be in, in, also in? Uh, south of us, they're in New Mexico. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so the other component that we haven't talked about too much as far as getting the sand here is the wind... Okay. During those periods of dry conditions when all of that debris was exposed on the floor of this big ancient lake, mm-hmm. which, by the way, the researchers call Lake Alamosa, during dry periods, the wind, which blows mostly from the southwest, mm-hmm. would blow right across that dry lake bed and start moving those grains of sand toward the current location of the dune field. Now, how big is the lake that's among the dunes, in the dunes? Uh, there is no lake in the dunes today. Oh, there isn't. The big lake that we were talking about is in, in, in as you said earlier, hun- thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the dunes are just strictly around nothing but dry. There's no water around them at all. No, there are those two streams those that two flow streams. on either side. Okay, the two streams. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And, and this valley contains many areas of wetlands, although the climate is very dry today. This valley receives only seven or eight inches of rain in an average year, or of combined rain and snow in an average year. There are many areas of wetlands around the dune field today, and that's one of the reasons that the, the habitat is so rich for wildlife here. Mm-hmm. So what kind of t- trees do you have? Um, we have mostly pinyon and juniper trees, pinyon pines and Rocky Mountain junipers at the elevation where I am right now. I'm at about 8,000 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm. There are ponderosa pines and Douglas firs and aspens and cottonwoods mm-hmm. uh, above us and also in the drainages. Mm-hmm. And below us out in the valley floor, uh, there aren't very many trees. It's mostly scrub brush and grasslands. Okay. So now when you go to work every day, um, how far do you, where do you come from? I come from my house, which is about five miles south of here. Okay. I live in a tiny little uh, community. Our closest town with with services is Alamosa. Uh-huh. That's about 35 miles away, and that's where many of our park visitors find meals and lodging if they're mm-hmm. if they're uh, visiting and staying in uh, motels. Yeah, I always ask about that. So that's five years. Now, do, is there a lodge up in, in the National Forest there? And the park system, I mean? There's a, na- a little lodge just outside the National Park boundary, which is open only in the summer months. But that's a fabulous place for people to stay if they're not camping, if they're mm-hmm. staying in motels when they travel. We have a very nice campground in the park itself, uh, and that's a very popular place generally from the middle of May until early October. So it has, it has facilities for showers and... No showers. It has restroom buildings with running water and flush okay. toilets. Okay, uh, got But it that. Ha- does not have utility hookups. Okay. There's a neighbor business right outside the park that does have a R- uh, campground more suitable for RVs. Okay, okay. And then how do, you, uh, do you do anything with a junior, because it's one of my favorite subjects, a junior ranger system? We do. We have Young. a fairly active junior ranger program. Uh, we have programs specifically for kids every day during the summer months. Uh-huh. And we also have a booklet that we hope, Families will pick up a junior ranger booklet, and kids uh, can do activities that are keyed to their ages and then earn several little awards depending on what what they do. So mm-hmm. we're always happy when children do that. It's a great way for the whole family to learn about the place. Now, when you decided to become part of a future of a park, park national park, when you were young, was there any influence when you were young to think about that, or did it come later in life? No, it came when I was very young from my family, who, God bless them, took us to uh, national parks all over the country when we were children. Mm-hmm. And so my brother and I both were interested, in, especially in western national parks. Yeah, the reason I ask that is because most of the people we've had on throughout the United States uh, that are in the National Forest uh, Service or National Park System, uh, have there was an influence when they were young, Carol. Mm-hmm. And I probably am one of those uh, as a child. My parents liked to camp, and my grandfather had a cabin on the river, and uh, we swung the grape lines and I, uh, vines, and we swam in the river, and, and my life was always spent around water, and I really mm-hmm. loved the water mm-hmm. and became uh, what I do now is the only company globally studying the ability of water for water therapy for what the dry air is doing to our health. But... Isn't it funny how, you know, uh, in the national park system, it seems like in forest system, that most everybody in it had some young influence to be with nature. That's right, and I think there's some solid research underway right now that is starting to show that 
the choices that we make as adults are often very strongly influenced by the experiences we had with our families as children. Isn't that, now, now you just said the magic, with your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the family is so important, or adopt a family to do things with. Mm-hmm. Now, your website is www.n, like a Nancy, P like in Park, S like in and, um, Samuel. In what? Samuel or Samuel. Samuel. Okay, so it's nps.gov. Mm-hmm. And it's, what, what is the rest of it? Then there's a forward slash and the letters GR, like in great, SA, like in sand. Okay. So www.nps, like in National Park Service, dot gov slash G-R, like in great, S-A, like in Sam. Okay, so they can go to the website all over the world, and if they're coming to America, see about, look into maybe looking into the Masco, Colorado area for the uh, great sand dune. I think people all over the world would love to see that. Besides, the, the state of Colorado is one of the most beautiful states. There are fly fishing, parks, and you even have skiing in the uh, skiing. Tell us about the skiing if you want to before we go. Well, Colorado has world-famous skiing. Most right. people that come to Great Sand Dunes who ski come in winter, and there are very few winter visitors. So it's a great, a great thing to do, but not very, uh, there aren't very many people who do that in winter. So I'm always excited to see skiers out there. All right. right. Well, Carol, thank you for joining us again. If, and maybe we'll do this again if you ever have any more education for us. Well, certainly. I'd be happy to. Thank you for the mission, and tell everyone we said hello. I'll do that. Thanks very much. Thank you for your time. Have a nice day. Well, life on this earth is what you want to give to it, and it's so important. And global warming is like Jerry Barnes said. It's it's there. It's going to be there for eternity. It has been there. All the ecologists, everyone, scientists have said it's there. It's been there from the beginning of time. You have to learn to be proactive with what you want to learn about yourself, living with yourself on this earth and improve your own habits, your own health. Drink an abundant of water. If I gave you a life-saving tip, it's the water first. So remember that and learn to think about the ecosystem and how you treat others and how you want to give back. Earth has a secret. Embrace your life on this earth Every precious moment is important to you and to those around you and your attitudes. Earth is whispering, though. Never say goodbye because you will leave that footprint, and I think that is so important to the ecosystem and what is best for all. Thank you for listening, and I want to thank my director, Sarah Seals, and her co-director, Bonnie Mark, for making this show possible and all of the special guests we've had each week from uh, we've been almost these two years thank you for listening have a nice day you're listening to world talk radio where the world comes to talk